guys. That was great. I really appreciate that. You have your Bibles. I'd love for you to turn. Sure this is, uh, there we go. Am I good? No? Okay, yeah, well, I'll just have to yell really loud. Oh, no, I'm good. All right. I'd love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 all the way to 22. And if you are new here today, I want to welcome you to Manor. Yeah, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one in the seat in front of you. Let's uh, let's read God's Word. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22 says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we open up our, our word to you, would you help me uh, articulate the word accurately and clearly? And would you uh, open up our hearts to hear where your Holy Spirit would convict us and apply this text to us this morning? And the whole church said, Amen. All right, I just want to make sure that this remote kind of works. Is that me or is that you? That's you. All right. All right. Well, by way of illustration, in order to help us understand the text today, I, I want to do a little bit of illustration using youth group. How many of you have had the privilege and opportunity of growing up or being a part of a church youth group in some way or some fashion? All right, most of us, most, most of us have had. Uh, experience, yay or nay? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I got my work cut out for me today. All right, so uh, most of us have had a chance to grow up in a youth group, and, and if you've never been to a youth group before in, in church, it, uh, youth groups are typically places for young people to gather in the church and learn what it means to find Jesus and follow Jesus, to accept Jesus and I love Jesus. And one of the things that I really appreciate about youth group is that it's small. Uh, in reference back to the size of the churches that they, they attend to. And because it's small, what tends to happen is the, uh, there's, a, there, there's a sense of family, there's a sense of relationship, there's a sense of community that gets built uh, really quickly. The kids start to love each other, they like, they like being each other. And I always thought it was a win when uh, kids loved youth group more than they loved sports, right? So that they would come to youth group, and, or they would they would have like a youth group practice and the hockey practice, and they say, "I'm I'm just I'm gonna miss youth. I want to go to youth." I always found that that was a win. I always found that youth group was amazing when it was a place where the people felt like family. And to illustrate our text this morning, I just want to draw out two observations about youth group, and that is, it's usually, here's what I found, it's usually the youth who are at the center of the youth group that say that youth group feels like family. Okay? It's usually the kids that grow up and say, hey, you know what, I really feel like I'm a part of this, that I'm a part of the family, that I'm inside the circle, that, that say that it is welcoming and it's belonging and all, all that thing. And you know what, that is a good thing. 
people should feel like they are part of the family, that they are encouraged, that they're a part of it, and that they, they, they are doing it. The trick is, though, is that sometimes what happens in youth group is that's not everyone's experience. Sometimes youth groups suffer from something called a click. How many of you know what a click is? Yeah. Well, a click uh, is uh, essentially what I would say is it's a tight group of friends that are almost bound together and have a deeper relationship with each other than they do with other people. And that part is not necessarily wrong. Okay? You should have a group of people in your life. It's not wrong to have a group of people with, that you have a deeper relationship with and love more and you just feel like that bond more than you do with others. The problem is, is that when it becomes exclusionary, okay, a clique is usually a narrow exclusive circle or a group of friends, okay? And that's probably, and one, no matter what you agree, youth group you grow to, they always seem to struggle with some people feeling like, hey, you know, this place is so welcoming, but the Christians on the outside, the Christians that are new, don't necessarily feel like way. So what winds up happening is that kids find that there are a stranger in youth group, and I, I really struggle with that. That's a picture of my youth group. And I struggled with that in my, in my group. In that picture, it looks like everyone's together, but actually, they're they're pretty fragmented. I had the jocks, I had the gamers, I had the country guys, I had the city guys, I had the academics, and they all had they all had they all kind of congregated on their own. Okay. And so to create that feeling of unity, uh, and so to create that that sense where. The biggest question that I struggled with was how do you how do you make everyone on the outside feel like they're a part of the church family? That's something that all youth groups struggle with. But here's the other thing that I know about youth groups is that youth groups grow up. Don't they? Youth groups grow up. Is that not true? It's totally true. And if youth groups grow up and they stay a part of the church, what do they become? What's that? They become part of the church. And so what I find happening sometimes is that when the youth group grows up, sometimes what grows up with them is that problem of exclusivity and actually that feeling of strangeness. And sometimes what I feel a lot of churches struggle with, and this is the illustration part coming in, is that, is, is that the same feeling that, 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 that you have in youth group, you act, people in all kinds of churches really struggle with. And that is, is that there are some people that feel they, they're, they, the church is family, that the church is so welcoming, it's a great place, but then there are others that are not. And it's not wrong to be in that place where you feel like it's family. You should feel like it's family. You should feel like you're inside the center or inside the circle. But not everybody feels that way. And so the big question that I think a lot of churches struggles with is the question of this. is If you and I uh, are blessed by feeling like we are part of the church family, we feel like we're connected, we feel like the church is so welcoming, we feel like it's a place where we belong, then the question really is, is how do we get that sense of family to bust out to those who are outside the center? Okay? Does everyone follow with me so far? Okay. 
I just want to make sure because, like, and so that's what our text deals with this morning. Is that question of this, and I want you to just look at the text one more time, and it starts out by saying this. It starts out by saying that you are no longer strangers. I want you to catch that. Which means, with Jesus, here's what I want you to take away, is that Jesus wants the church to be a place of belonging, relationship, and love. You're going to notice, uh, if you look at the text this morning, that our text begins with the word so. Okay? And so, other translations use the word consequently. Okay? And what that means is, is that what we're about to learn right now is sort of a, a result of what we learned last week. And you remember what we learned last week is that Jesus not only heals our sins, but he heals our divisions. Uh, you have been, you have more in common with uh, your Asian brother and sister in Christ who doesn't know the language or the customs than you would do with a Canadian who doesn't. That the thing that binds us together is that God solves racism by creating a new humanity out of every ethnic race. And so by then, there is unity when we come together in Jesus, right? That's, that was the text that we learned yesterday. That in Jesus, when you come to faith, and when you find Jesus, and when you accept Jesus into a heart, you are included into a new, a new humanity. It's not necessarily universalism. It's this idea that in Jesus, there is unity. And you only find uh, a, a, a unity through Jesus, okay? By believing that he died on the cross for his sins, that believing that he was Jesus. <clears throat> Following Jesus isn't a bunch of nice ideas, it's an experience, it's something that has to be practical. In other words, the idea of there being no divisions, and that Jesus unites everyone from every culture by the blood of Jesus Christ, has to become something practical. Okay? Which means this, is that Jesus wants the church to be a place of belonging and relationship and love. So the, the main idea of the text this morning is this, is there is no such thing as a stranger in church. Let me say that again. According to the text this morning, there is no such thing is a stranger in church. Everyone knows what it means to be a stranger. I can imagine you do. If I were to ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you would be a, have been a stranger, you would probably say yes. And you know what you would tell me? You would tell me that it's uh, uncomfortable. It's alienating to be a stranger. It can even be downright frightening. You see, God created the need to be a to belong is a part of a universal human need. God created you and I for an intense desire for relationship, both ultimately with God himself and with other people. Everyone else, um, if you've been invited to a social gathering where you knew no one, then you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Where you are invited, maybe it's a wedding, or a memorial, or someone's birthday, or a work thing, or whatever, and you don't know anyone, and it feels uncomfortable. And let me tell you, I know exactly how that feels, because 
Uh, I, my first experience in manner was just that when we were candidating. If you recall what happened when I candidated, I was here for a week, and uh, the idea was is that Liz and I would go to, the, the church broke off the, the church into different age groups, and then I was to have a meal every other day with all these people. So I had a meal with the seniors, I had a meal with the 30 and 40 year olds, I had a meal with the young adults, I, and in every situation, we would drive up to the house, and Liz and I would go, we don't know anybody, <laughs> right? And it's just like, and you know how scary that can be, right? That can be very, very scary. But you know what it's like to be in a situation where you don't know everyone. Everyone else seems to find someone that they interact with. They have a personal history to catch up on. They form into closed circles and getting that you're not invited. And they passionately talk about whatever they have in common and you're left standing by yourself. Not wanting to seem awkward, you go and get a coffee or a drink, trying to look bu busy, but eventually you just stand there fidgeting. In my previous church, we had a, we called it running the laps. And what we meant by that is we had two parallel hallways that, that connected either side of the church together. And so what would happen is, if you were new or didn't know anybody, what we, what we noticed is people would walk around the entire church building inside, right? And then you formed like a trap. And so we called it running the lap. So you could always tell who was feeling a little bit uncomfortable because they would spend 20 minutes before the service walking around, right? Everyone remembers those kids. That there were other kids that would, might be considered loners in grade school. Perhaps it was even you. Perhaps you can remember times when you had no friends and going to school every morning took all the courage you could muster and how you dreaded uh, every day because you stood by yourself and you were easy prey for teasing and jokes and cruel childhood pranks. I can tell you a few. See, those kinds of experiences can mark a person, can't they? For a lifetime, being a stranger is risky business. Imagine, if you will, how uncomfortable it would be if you were a stranger at church on Sunday morning. Everyone is greeting someone in the foyer, but the stranger looks on. He or she is very, feeling very out of sorts. Those on the inside of the friendship networks marvel at how friendly church can be, but those on the outside feel like the access points to easy acceptance are never really open to them. Eventually, they don't come back, and it seems like no one has noticed. How do we know that these aren't happening? These kinds of things aren't happening in churches across Canada. How would you do it? I've been in the, I've been part of the experience of being unseen and unheard. Liz gave me permission to share the story a while ago. We were at a church, and Liz decided that her best way of connecting in church was to serve. So we did something uh, called Adventures Day Camp. It was VBS, and she decided, I'm going to volunteer the entire summer every week to establish a relationship. So she did, and, and what wound up happening is that relationships did form. People did feel a sense of camaraderie, but not with her. One day I drove to pick her up at 4 o'clock and she ran in the car crying. Because what had happened was after VBS was finished, 
all the leaders and all the staff said, hey, what do you want to do? Well, let's go to Boston Pizza and go to a movie. So they all went and didn't think to invite her. Being a stranger can hurt. And I would go so far to say that the smaller the church is, the bigger the hurt is when people are left treated like a stranger. Okay? And I, I've, I've talked to people, not necessarily about manner, but just, you know, why they pick the churches that they do in general. And once one person said to me, Dan, I choose the bigger church over the smaller church because when I go in there, um, I, I expect no one to see who I am. I expect to be treated like a traitor. So when I walk out, I might feel like it's impersonal, but that's okay because there's 3,000 or 4,000 people there, and it hurts less than going to a church where I sit down and, and I go to the service and, and I walk out and nobody recognizes who I am. It just hurts less. It, so I don't want to feel that way, so I choose to go to a church where the expectation is, is that I'm a stranger. So the Word of God, how do we deal with that? Well, the Word of God tells us that in church, no one, the concept of a stranger should not exist among us. And to do that, he gives three metaphors of what the church should be. And I'm just kind of curious if you guys can pick it out. Can you give me the three metaphors in the text that describe the church? Anyone want to take a guess of what one of it would be? A building, that's one. The country, that's the other one. And one more. So, if you look at the text really closely, it says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and with the saints. So that's the idea of a nation, okay, or a country. And there's the idea that you are members of the household of God, that's the family. And then he goes on to talk about this, he says, You are built on the foundation of the apostles, uh, and, and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for the Lord. So there's the three metaphors for church, okay? Is that you are a nation, you are, you are a family, and you are a temple. That's what he's saying, is that you cannot, there should be no such thing as a stranger in church because the church is like a nation, the church is like a family, and the church is like a temple. Now, you might be sitting there, okay, I get it, the church is a nation, a family, and a temple, but what does a nation, a family, and a temple have to do with being a stranger? Okay? Because the text says you are no longer strangers, so then it tells you that the church is a nation, a family, and a temple. What does that have to do with being a stranger? And that's simply this is that a nation, a family, and a temple can't function if individuals stand apart from each other. Let me say that again. A family, a nation, and a temple cannot function together if they stand apart from each other. If they're individuals, and not if they're and in the same way, a church cannot function if everybody is a stranger. Okay. Let me go through this really quickly today as the text. So the first thing is that 
the, the scripture says is that the church is like a nation, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. Some translations will say that you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Okay? And what this is saying is that if a nation is fully made up of foreigners and aliens, it can't function unless people are actually citizens. Here's what I mean by that. There are some people who attend Manor or who, have, who live in Three Hills who are foreigners and aliens to Canada. And you remember immigrating. So you can understand the metaphor a little bit. You remember how it felt when you came. Some people uh, came to Three Hills for, uh, fleeing persecution. Some came for job opportunities. And some came uh, not knowing any of, you, any of the languages or customs of Canada or rural Albertans, and you felt like a stranger. When Paul uses the word uh, stranger and alien, he means two different kinds of people. For, uh, the word foreigner uh, means that there were people who were given, that stayed in the country for a given reason until their business was done and then they moved back. Okay? The second was is that they were an alien, they were long term residents. But they were prevented from owning any land and only had the basic human rights as a, or as, as a Roman citizen. So just the bare minimum. So in other words, it's kind of like being a long-term resident of Canada. And I'm not sure about all the, all the, all the what's the right word, the official statuses. But you can live here and be a part of Canada, but if you're not a citizen, you can't vote, right? You can't be a part of that. A nation can't function as if everybody is a foreigner or an alien. There needs to be people who are bought in who say that I'm a part of Canada, that I'm a part of a citizenship, and that's the same thing that happens in church. First okay. Peter 2 9 says this You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy what? Nation. A people of his own possession. If that is who God has made us to be, we've got to live out that reality. You see, there is only one Christian country on earth, and that is the church. We are citizens of that country, and we belong to each other. Okay? Amen. The second metaphor that he gives is that you are one of a family. Listen to this. It says, you are no longer strangers or foreigners, but members of God's holy citizens and... <clears throat> You are members of the household of God. In scripture, households always tie together the idea of family. The Bible consistently uses the image of family to describe church. The church, we are told, is the family of God. We are the learned to call you brother and sister in the Lord. In Christ, we have a family-type relationship with one another since we've been adopted into God's family and since we commonly call God our Father. We are His family, and the key is, is that God wants us to be members of our family and not guests in our family. I don't know if you've had guests over, but you treat guests differently in your family than you do when you have than members of your family, don't you? Some people treat the church as if they were a guest. We have guests in our home from time to time. And the thing about having guests is that you and I tend to act differently when guests are at our house than we do when we're not. Okay? 
I don't lie down on the couch and go to sleep when I have guests. That would be a bad host, wouldn't it? Yeah, of course it would be. Right? Our guests don't act differently. They don't chip in, and they don't buy the meal. They don't set the table or clean up or clean the gutter or do all the necessary chores around the house. They just show up, enjoy time with us, eat our food, and take off because they are guests and they're not family members. Okay? It's the same idea in church. Members of the household know that we are to chip in together. Right? You have rules about that in your home, don't you? So you get the dinner together ready, you know, mom and dad, mom makes dinner, you know, everyone chips in, someone sits at the table. We all chip in. In the family, everyone has a responsibility to chip in. You don't treat each other like that. <coughs> and yet sometimes what winds up happening in church is church winds up being the place where people act like guests. They come, they consume, and they leave. But the church is not supposed to be like that. A church, a family cannot function if everyone stands alone. Lastly, there is this idea that the church is a temple. Okay? Temples can't function if stones are not built together around the foundation. Okay? So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household, and you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, be, uh, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. You see, friends, in the Jewish culture, there was a the, the temple was the source of identity, right? It was the central place of worship where people would come to learn about God, people would come to worship, and people would come to pray. And in the Old Testament, we know three of them. Okay. There was Solomon's temple, and we all know the story about that. Solomon built the temple before the Lord, but that one eventually got destroyed. Now, if you remember our series on Daniel, who destroyed that temple? Well, not the Romans. The Babylonians did. So, Solomon's temple was a place of great wealth. And then what winds up happening is the Babylonians come in, they raid the temple, and they destroy it, and the whole nation is in exile. We learned about that last year. We spent most of the time learning Daniel and that. Then what happens is 70 to 90 years after that temples get destroyed, the, the people of Israel are allowed to return, and they go back, and they build the city, and they build the temple. They build it again. And you hear about that in Nehemiah and... Help me out here. Yeah, Ezra. Ezra. Thank you. Okay, so that's that story. And if you hear that, you'll, you'll notice that they say this. They, they mourn because the elders noticed that the temple that they did build wasn't as good as Solomon's temple. Okay? The ones that were still alive. Lastly, but that one gets destroyed too. And that one gets destroyed somewhere in between the period of the Old Testament and the New Testament when the, when the Romans come in. Okay? And lastly, there's Herod's temple, which is the rendition that you see there. This is the temple that exists during the time of Jesus. Okay? And what's interesting about that temple, I never really told this is just a side fact, they never really finished building it. It was in a constant state of construction. 
when it was there. But that temple too also got destroyed. Any kind of Bible officiados know when that one got destroyed? 70 AD. 70 AD. The point is this, is that you have this place where there is a temple of God where people come and they worship and they find out who Jesus, or they find out who God is and, it, and all three versions of the temple get destroyed. There is a temple, unlike a physical temple, Jesus has his own temple. The church is like a temple. And, in, in, and unlike these three temples, the temple will never fail. There is a place of worship, there is a place of prayer that will never be defeated by enemies. A temple that is going to stand for all eternity, and that temple is the church. Made up not of cement and drywall, but, of, but a temple made up of people. The metaphor is this, is that Paul is telling us that we are being built into the temple. And the temple is made up of three elements. It's made up of the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And the way that the, 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 the cornerstone is, is Jesus himself. Remember that Paul is telling us that the entire structure of the temple rests on the foundation that has been laid. You've, if you've ever been a built, part of a building project, you'll notice that you don't lay a foundation halfway through the building project, do you? That would be silly. Like, the foundation is laid first. Temples can be built if the stones stand alone or not on a foundation. We can't stand apart from the church. We are the church. A stranger... <clears throat> And so in that way, what winds up happening is that we stand together. You see, the idea is this, is that a cornerstone, especially in that temple right there, um, was about 40 feet long, I think. And the whole, in every stone that was built around it, it was built to take shape around it. So my point is this, is that, is that stones themselves, if they stand alone, they can't take the shape of the temple. They, need to, they can't stand apart from each other. Families, nations, and temples require the things that build them to stand together, to chip in, and to be apart. And in the same way, the church cannot stand together if everyone stands alone. Christians need to be friends with each other. That's the point of the text. And it's saying, what it's trying to say is it's trying to dry out a pot practicality. Remember, chapter 2 is telling us that, the first part is telling us that we are dead in our sins and Jesus saves us, heals us from our sins. Second part tells us that God divides, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between the divisions we have. And the outworking of that is that there are no strangers in church. So the question then is, like, as we wrap up today, is how do we how do we live as if there are no strangers in church? How do we make people feel welcome in the church? Well, interesting enough, God's word does not leave us high and dry, and this guy actually gives us a tactic for how to make sure that people feel like they are a part of the family of God. And it comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and it says this. Let brotherly love continue. 
do not neglect to show hospitality to who? Strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels anywhere. God's answer to making people feel like they are not a stranger at church. At least one of them is hospitality. And I don't mean hospitality in the way that the world needs it, meaning that you're entertaining people. Hospitality is using either the church space or your family space to treat strangers as if they are family so that they can encounter Jesus and actually become family. This kind of hospitality is different from the way that the world works it. Biblical hospitality is a both an attitude of the heart and with something that we do with interactions. It's not that just we invite someone over for a meal and say hi to them. It's that we are treating them in ways that aren't spoken. It's that we are saying, hey, we love you and we want to know you and we want you to be a part of our family. And we want you to know Jesus. When strangers are treated like family, it is really an attitude that reflects the spirit of hospitality that we see in the gospel. Hospitality, my friends, is an expression of the gospel because you and I have received the ultimate welcome. Read again verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. God has welcomed us into our home. Jesus' primary ministry was done through hospitality. When we look at Jesus, he didn't spend most of his time in church. He did go to church. He did go to service. When we look at Jesus, he went after people. He had a meal with them. He actually gave promises and warnings about this. He rebuked people for building bigger and better barns for the sake of their ease instead of using their wealth to invite people who don't know Jesus into their homes for relationship. Jesus talked about the idea of hoarding your possessions is a recipe for disaster, but giving them up so you can invite non-Christians into the home or strangers in the home so that they know Jesus is a great thing. And I'm very thankful for that. You see, I, you and I need to understand something about Jesus' ministry. It didn't happen always at the Sunday services. Jesus' best work happened in between services during the week. He ate with the people, he taught and laughed with people, and he did it so much that people accused him of being a drunken and a glutton. And I think that's very crucial for you and I understand about how important that is. Because I think hospitality is a great way to make people feel welcome at church. I don't know if you know this or not, but I just want to share with you something really cool, and that's this. Um, it was about... This time last year, we were still under restrictions, right? Yeah. So I remember last Christmas, we weren't able to do the same stuff. But it was during the, it, but it was right around now. When did the restrictions lift? Remember, remember? It was right around now, okay? When the restrictions lifted and everything went back to quote unquote normal, <coughs> this is what happened in the last year of church including the individual kids. There have been 45 individual visitors, or I would say strangers, to, that have attended a Sunday service at NAM. 45. Can you believe that? 
That's like half the size of the church. That's not the cool part I want to tell you about, though. This is the cool part. Every visitor who has come to Manor in the last two years, who was invited out by one or more people in the church, has decided to call this church their home church. Isn't that cool? So my point of bringing that up is simply this. It's simply that not only is the Bible true, it works. It works. You want to share the gospel of Jesus? Be a hospital person. If you want, to, if you want people who go find to know Jesus, uh, treat them like they're not a stranger. If you want them to, if you want Alberta to know Jesus, this is the way that they do it. This is how people feel belonged and a part of the church. Now, here's, you know, I'll give you how, how this works out for Liz and I. Liz and I, I, I don't know if you know her schedule, but I'll, I'll tell you how a week looks for me. I, on Sunday mornings, I'm, you know, I, I get up early. Some of you don't believe that. <laughs> but I do. I get up and I, I pray before I come to church. I pray. I come here. And so my day starts from probably 8.30 and it doesn't end until about 4 to 5. You might say, Dan, like that's, you're only here until 12. In fact, you're a little bit over 12 now. What's going on? But you see, usually what winds up happening is Liz and I, almost every Sunday, we say almost, invite someone over from the church. Okay? And in this last year, most of you, and I would say, and I haven't gotten you yet, I'm sorry, it's not because I haven't forgotten you, it's just that there's a lot of you. <laughs> okay? As I've invited you over to my home, and you sat down and we do that week in and week out, then Tuesday, Monday, Tuesdays, or uh, sorry, Mondays are time with Liz, that's, that's our day together. Tuesdays, our days go from 9, till, 9 a.m. till 7 p.m., Wednesdays it's Wednesdays it's 8:30 to 4:30. Thursdays it's 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. If you can believe it or not. Thursday, yeah, I didn't know why. Thursday, Thursday or uh, Fridays, uh, 9 to 5 in the church. And so what I'm trying to say is like, why are your days so long? It's because we're with people. We are building relationships with people. That's exhausting. And we're tired. Liz has a job, she works with babies, okay? And she comes home and she's exhausted. And she comes home and she's like, let's have people over. Let's go over to someone's house. And she loves that. And I know that some of you are in the same boat. You work and you're, you're tired and the last thing you want to do is have people over. But listen, I'm not asking you to do something that, I'm not, that I haven't put my own family through, okay? When we, or when we show hospitality, either in church or in our homes, we fulfill the idea of not being a stranger in church. And I'm not expecting you to do it to the level that Liz and I do, but I do want to challenge you with something as we close today. I would like you, and as you're leaving the service, and you're on your way home today, and you're critiquing whether or not I did a good job or not, I want you to consider picking one of the following, just one. Okay? And because, uh, because April made that announcement, I'm going to add another one to that list, and that's this. Is that I, I would actually like you to start serving in church. If you haven't started serving in church yet, I find a place to serve. You'd be surprised how fast the feeling of being a stranger dissipates when you are involved in something. Okay? 
when you were pouring in. Second thing is, and remember, I just want you to pick one, is you could try the 321 thing I've talked about before, which is this. Is you go through the phone directory of the church and you simply do this. You do three text messages, two calls, and one meetup. Okay? Hey, how you doing? Praying for you. Quick, quick text, that's all it is. Okay. The third thing you can try, and this is probably something that you should not unilaterally decide without talking to your spouse. Yes. Is that you should set aside one to two Sundays a month to invite a family over for lunch or dessert. And I say lunch or dessert simply because that's not as strenuous as dinner, right? You try that. It doesn't have to be a big thing. I remember I went over to someone's house a few weeks ago and they made pancakes. Right, Rachel? Yeah. Those were good. Right? If, that, if you don't feel like that is, if that's, that's, that's a little bit too much, set aside one to two evenings a month. Just one or two. To have a family from the church over for dessert. Someone you don't know. Someone that maybe irritates you know. Maybe if that's true, you shouldn't do that right away, because then you know that, you know. Anyway. Uh, or you set aside one to two days to get together with people. Or you can join the Tuesday Zoom prayer meeting. It's a great community of people, and you don't have to leave your house to do it, right? To pray over the church. And lastly... Because April mentioned it, I'm going to encourage you to actually sign up for the guest who's coming to dinner today. That would be a great way. So just pick. And, and, and I'm setting the bar, like, I'm, I, I just want you to know, like, I'm not setting the bar low because, you know, I don't think you can do it. I just, I, just, I just don't want to guilt you into doing this, and I want to make something realistic for you. Because if I tell you, okay, you got to meet with everybody every Sunday and you don't do it, then you're going to feel guilty and shameful. That's not what I'm going for. I just want you to win. I want you to be able to uh, do something that's manageable. So, hey, listen, like, there are seven suggestions I gave. If you can come up with another one, that's great. But just, I want you to pick one. Pick one this week. And here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Is I'm going to challenge you to make sure that you do that regularly between now and seeding. Okay? Because as soon as seating comes, I know that this is going to be a hard time, right? Everyone's going to work, everyone's busy, all that kind of thing. But you have the perfect time right now. Right now is the perfect time for us to show hospitality together, for us to be friends together, and be and show the world that there's no such thing as a stranger at church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. And I'm thankful that your word tells us that there is no such thing as strangers among the family of God. That we are all friends in Christ. That we are a family in Christ. That we are a nation together. And we are a temple of God being built in a place where the Holy Spirit can dwell. God, if there are people among us that do feel like they are strangers, we, we, pray, we pray that they would feel welcome and accepted into this great body of and know and experience the love that so many of us in this church have been blessed with. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Why don't you guys go stand in the house for one last song?